Hello, welcome to the first installment of my audio issue of the Cramming for the Apocalypse newsletter. I had been conducting a lot of interviews for this book project and for this newsletter, and so I thought I'd give it a shot to do a kind of podcast. Um, It's a bit of a learning curve, given that I don't know anything about doing audio or recording audio, so uh, this uh, current recording is not the greatest as far as quality goes. Uh, The interview is fine, but this, what I'm recording at this moment, is not. Um, So with that, I'm going to introduce you to Alana Kiefer. My name's Alana Kiefer, and I... I wear a lot of hats, but I'm a marine science educator as a whole. Um, I've been working for Oregon seaweed for the past two years. So I'm farming dulse seaweed on the Oregon coast, but also um, pushing that into communities. So doing a lot of community outreach around seaweed and yeah, um, just educating people in that world. But on the side, do a lot of intertidal foraging and just exploration on my own and um, have been pretty excited to get involved in that and like more of an educational pulling other people in as well. Um, but yeah, long time in marine science education. So yeah, tell me a little bit about how you got to where you are today. I remember at the class, you kind of gave an intro of like your past. So would love to hear that again. And, you know, anything that's happened in between. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's, It's been a journey. So I moved to Oregon about 10 years ago. Um, Me and my mom moved to Seaside where I was, I finished high school and we moved from the East Coast. I knew forever that I wanted to get involved with marine biology and came out here and immediately started working in intertidal systems. So I really knew nothing about, I mean, I guess the ocean in general, but Oregon's ocean specifically. And as a high schooler was working at an environmental education program down at the base of Haystack Rock in Cannon Beach, um, which is really like it's protection through education. So it's protection of this marine garden um, all through education. So in order to teach people about it, I had to learn everything I could about it and really like cherish that I was getting this like immediate hands-on experience doing that. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't taking classes. I wasn't doing anything in the world of academia, but I was, I mean, I was in high school, but I was like spending every day in the intertidal with ID books and with other people who had spent years in this ecosystem and really just learning from there. And I think that like sparked that no matter what I did in marine biology, I needed and wanted to be educating people and working in the communication side of things. Um, so I went to OSU, studied marine biology, like took a year, went to Australia, studied there and just traveled or traveled around and saw different ocean ecosystems. Like obviously they have warm water coral reefs and we do not have that at all. Um, but um, when I ended college, I went to uh, Catalina Island. So I spent two years on Catalina again, teaching. So I was working with kids there. It was like a Marine science camp where kids would come over from school and do their like week long outdoor ed camp. Um, so we were just taking them snorkeling and kayaking and hiking and doing all this like really amazing outdoor adventure stuff. And, um, it wasn't until COVID that they like literally booted us off the island. So I didn't necessarily choose to come back to the Oregon coast, but I came back to the Oregon coast and, um, it just happened to be that the seaweed farm was being built, which was like a very, 
full circle dream of mine that I never really expected to happen here in Oregon. Um, so I finished helping them build the farm and then um, just started working around seaweed, I guess. I became this like seaweed salesperson, but it was really just like education around seaweed and trying to teach people in the community how to use it, what it is, why we should be using it. Um, and then got involved with foraging workshops through Wildcraft, which was also um, just really exciting. Somebody connected me with Chelsea and they needed a new instructor. So it was something I do all the time on my own anyway. And I was pretty excited to be able to take more groups. I really missed like the group education stuff and was happy to jump right back into it. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, tell me a bit about the seaweed journey because I, one of the things that really stuck out to me when, um, when we took the class was how excited you are about seaweed. (laughs) And I've never, you know, I, you know, I had heard that seaweed was, you know, a potential superfood and had a lot of, um, you know, could be a solution for sustainable farming and, and food growing. And so I, I just want to know like where that energy comes from and what, um, what excites you about it? (laughs) I honestly don't know where it comes from, except that on Catalina Island, we were, I was surrounded by kelp forests. So like my playtime in the ocean was diving through kelp and, um, just like being fully immersed in that ecosystem. And I think, it's always funny because in for people who are like in the world of marine biology, you know, this is like something you hear about happening and it's like a part of the ocean. So you hear about seaweed farming going on. But I realized very quickly that people who are not in that world, it's like a whole different like people don't hear about it, nor do they know anything about it. So it was kind of this just this thing where when I heard that it was going on here, you know, it was through a fisherman who had no idea that I was remotely interested in this. Um, and was kind of like, what do you mean? This has been like a dream of yours. You like know about seaweed farming. Um, but just hearing about it going on in Oregon as like the first, it's the first farm that's popped up here and it is picking up steam around the country. Um, I think I was first interested just like as someone who loved those ecosystems and loved seaweed um, in our natural environment, but then to be able to work with it in an industry that's like trying to introduce the general public into it as a food source is also huge. And I've never, I've never really been involved in the food world. Like I, I have because my whole family works in the food service. So this is a whole other full circle deal where like, you know, my dad owned a restaurant, my mom is a food writer, my brother's now a chef. And so I grew up around food and now I'm working in the food systems, like through the ocean, which is just this whole other track that it has brought me to. But um, yeah, I just have a general like enthusiasm towards anything in the ocean. And I think when it's things that are literally here and helping our planet and like feeding people and I can see that there's excitement around it when people actually learn about it, it like fuels me to keep teaching about it, you know, when you can gauge that people actually start loving it when they learn about it. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, and let's talk about the ocean in general and, and inti- intertidal systems, uh, which, you know, that really is where a lot of your work is involved. Uh, I mean, for those who aren't <laughs> involved with the ocean or even have a sense of what an intertidal system is and what the significance of of an intertidal system is, can you explain a little bit more 
Yes. Um, so the intertidal system, the intertidal is any zone in the ocean that is, it's like the area between the tides, right? So when the tide goes out, it'll hit a certain low point. And when it comes back in, it like covers that whole area that was just uncovered. So anything that is in that zone is considered the intertidal zone. Um, in Oregon, we have like one of the most diverse intertidal ecosystems on the planet. Our ocean is super nutrient rich and um, we get really pretty big intertidal or tidal swings. So, you know, our tide can go from zero to 10 feet. We have like a 10 foot tide change, which is pretty significant. Tides are different all around the world. Um, but because our oceans are really nutrient rich, it also fuels everything in this ecosystem and that 10 foot tide change really creates these like you think of Oregon having these microclimates all over it right there's like mountains everywhere there's the coast you get these different environmental conditions from like one town to another and that's kind of how I think of the intertidal there's so many like rocks and crevices and different tidal heights and different you just get all these different conditions which allow a huge amount of organisms to settle in these different areas, these little pockets of the rocks. Um, so it's just this, it's this like scavenger hunt every time you go into the intertidal of like, you see the big organisms, right? You see these like giant green sea anemones, you see crabs, you see the things that are easy to spot. But once you really start diving into like, oh, I'm going to stare at this one little crevice for like 10 minutes and just see what I can find. It really brings to life how much is living in these environments. And that's like one rock of 300 miles of coastline that are all covered in different ecosystems. So it's, yeah, it's just a really diverse and unique area and pretty um, resilient in terms of like what can grow and what does grow there. You, you know, imagine like, 30 foot waves all winter long crashing into these rocks. And the fact that these animals are still there is just it's kind of mind boggling. <laughs> I know that's so cool. I I mean, yeah, I grew up in the inland Northwest in Spokane. And so we didn't go to the coast that often. And anytime we go to the coast, it's like, I want to find a tide pool. <laughs> and my kid is obsessed. Like he oh, loves oh, like, yeah. I mean, cause there's just so much there and, you know, immediately there's things, there are things moving around. So it catches your eye pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's like colorful, but also, yeah, there is movement and there's a lot of sound. Like people are always shocked when they walk up to the rocks and realize that they can hear noises. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, well, speaking of resiliency, I mean, I, you know, this, this whole project is about climate change and climate action. And I mean, just at a, you know, what are you seeing in these intertidal systems um, being affected by climate change and what are like actions that you think are essential in protecting these, these areas? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I, I've been here and seen changes in only the 10 years that I've lived on the Oregon coast. Um, and it's a lot of the changes have been like hard to pin specifically, but we believe and, you know, have pretty strong ideas that they're all like human caused to some degree. But I was here for the, the like sea star wasting event that went on along the whole West coast of America. And within like, you know, our, intertidal systems used to have hundreds of sea stars all over the rocks. And within a month, we lost like 90% of our sea star populations. And 
that is like one, yes, of the bigger animals that you see in the tide pools. They're super colorful. So they're like the thing everyone goes to see in kind of pictures when they think of Oregon's um, tide pools. But that was a huge change that we've been like universities all over have been monitoring what's going on after that um, and how the intertidal systems are changing. And, you know, I think it's like, it's like any organism when you think of changes going on on land, but all these animals have a way to, you know, they obviously deal with huge waves crashing on the rocks. Sometimes things do get dislodged and animals can come back. The ecosystems can kind of come back to what they were, but it's when these drastic changes are occurring with such small intervals in between them that they can't really bounce back to the population that it was before something else has gone on to disrupt it again. So we're seeing like, I guess it's saying we're seeing similar patterns, but it's happening closer together. So there's not as much time for these things to actually repopulate the areas that they were in. Um, yeah, there's a lot of work done at OSU and Bruce Mangie's lab. If you don't know him, you should look him up. Um, he does, he's like the grandfather of the intertidal systems. He's been doing work around here for like 50 years, if not more, <laughs> um, and has literally like seen and tracked those changes in all of his research. So it's been pretty interesting to see. Yeah, it's a, uh, we're hopeful though. There's a lot of good stuff going on. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And I mean, I'll talk about a little bit later, I have some questions kind of about climate action, but I want to get to like the um, foraging and, and I mean, that's how we met is that you taught the clamming class that I took last April in 2022. And um, it was like this beautiful resplendent day. I was actually, I have to admit, like I, it was so such a rainy winter and or spring. And I was like, Oh my God, we're going to be out in the mud and pouring rain. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, Oh God. But it was like, I mean, I think I would have had as much fun if it was raining anyway. Um, but like it helped that we woke up and it was like beautiful sunny weather. But, um, so just tell me a little bit about like, and you teach clamming classes and then also muscle classes, um, and about seaweed farming as well. And so can you tell me a little bit about the classes um, and what the intent is during those classes? Like, what are you hoping for attendees to participants to gain from the experience? Yeah. So I do the class you took, I do a clamming and seaweed farming class. So it's convenient that our Oregon seaweeds farm is right next to this huge mud flat and Tillamook Bay, which is like this hugely dense clamming area. <laughs> Um, so we go to the mud flats and we do some clamming and then we walk over to the seaweed farm and you get a tour of the farm and can hear about the seaweed industry as a whole. And then I do an intertidal, a rocky intertidal foraging class, which is more focused on mussels and seaweeds and like the other crustaceans that you find in the rocks. So these are both ecosystems that, you know, are exposed during low tide, but because of the conditions, one is just mud and one is super rocky. You get totally different animals that live there. So just two different focuses for foraging and education as a whole. Um, I think with foraging workshops, it's been really neat to see, because for years before this, I've led a lot of just pure educational ocean workshops um, and taking people into these ecosystems, but not necessarily like going home to with things that you can cook and eat. Um, And I think it really, the foraging and just seeing all this wild food all around our coast and really all around our state um, 
it really connects people to these areas more than I ever could have imagined. There's a lot of people who might not be interested in just like a purely educational class, but they want to, you know, they want to go home with something they want something tangible that they can show off or use in the future. Um, and that's where the foraging really comes into play. You can like get hands-on, you can learn about kind of what is safe and what is sustainable in this ecosystem and what is okay to be taking home with you. Um, and then finding ways to incorporating it, to incorporate it into your diet. There's a lot of like yeah, nutritional benefits around all these foods, but um, they're also just right here. They're abundant and they're right in our backyards. And it's, I think, uh, I think our whole lockdown really influenced people to like learn about <laughs> where their food is coming from and get more involved with um, just being able to find food in case, you totally. know, things get really out of hand. <laughs> so <laughs> it was to see the spike there because that was definitely something that Wildcraft has, had mentioned to me as well. <laughs> So they they got had an increase of of registrations. <laughs> I think so, yeah, and a lot of people so that signed up for my for the workshops would talk about how that kind of influenced people to get out there more. Yeah, that's cool. Um, what is something that you think is important for uh, foragers to know before they go out, um, and what they should really keep in mind when they're when they're foraging? Yeah, this is a good question. I think it's, there's like a hard balance and a fine line of having that attitude of like, oh, well, I can just go out there and figure it out on my own, you know, do some research online. And I think that is really valuable, obviously, when you can like go and yeah, figure something out on your own. But I think around the ocean, there's just a lot of safety things that I never really thought about when I moved here. And with the ocean and Oregon in general, um, it's, yeah, the ocean is a crazy place. It's like not super predictable. <laughs> and I think just with tides and with the safety on like wandering through the rocky intertidal, you know, there's a lot of sharp things. There's the waves. There's a lot of weather that we get that just isn't necessarily as conducive to foraging. And it's, you know, with mushroom foraging, which I don't really lead workshops in, there's the fear of like finding the wrong mushroom. And that's kind of the thing you have to worry about. In the rocky intertidal, there's not really things that you're going to eat that can kill you as much as like the so many species of mushrooms that can do that. But there are really like strict safety protocols that I would say are nice to know. And there's algae blooms and things that you really have to be checking up the day that you're about to forage. So it's just these like small details that I think it is really valuable to go with somebody or at least like really, really do your research before you go and know the area before you're like fully diving in headfirst to the intertidal systems. Yeah, totally. And what about kind of the responsibility on uh, foragers too? Like, I mean, one thing I, fi I found, I find handy with the, you know, the um, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife restrictions around having the cap on the number of um of clams we could forage for that we could bring home um, because it's like, okay, I can't go above this. I mean, and it's, it's, it's tricky. It's so tempting to just keep going, especially when you find these like clusters of clams, you're like, this is amazing. I'm just going to keep putting them in my, in my, <laughs> uh, my bucket. But like, I guess, you know, so it's handy to have that, that cap, but I think more generally speaking, it speaks to this, 
notion that we should be responsible about a way we're foraging and how we're foraging. And so I'm just kind of curious about like that generally speaking and what, you know, what your thoughts are about it. Yeah, I think the biggest thing to say is that Oregon and the West Coast do a phenomenal job in terms of like actually monitoring species populations and having these numbers and these regulations in place that reflect the work that people do to get that population data. Um, You know, it's like somebody's life work to be collecting all those numbers and to make the numbers that are sustainable. And yeah, like you're saying, it's really tempting to go into these places and just like take everything you can. And my biggest example with this is it's not even the clams, it's mussels because mussels you're, you're limited to 72 mussels you are allowed to take, which is a huge amount of muscle. That's huge. <laughs> you know, that high because our muscle populations are not struggling. They're doing really well. Um, they're, yeah, they're super sustainable food to take. But never have I gone into the intertidal and needed to take 72 muscles. And this is something that, yeah, I really stress in those classes. Like, you're all here. You all want to share this with friends. Sure, if you have, like, a big dinner party, take 72 muscles if you need it. But I, and I do this to myself personally, every time I'm out there harvesting things, I am also in the back of my mind thinking about the amount of time it is going to take to process the food that you take home with you. And that amount of time, plus the fact that you have to do it within two days, like seafood doesn't stay good forever in your fridge, you know? So you need to process or eat it within about two days. Um, And so it often depends on like what I'm doing that night or if I have plans the next day on like what I even have the the ability to process that day. Um, So it's just these, yeah, again, these little things to think about when you're out there. And I think for people who don't live at the coast, that's probably even more of a struggle because you're here and you think like, oh, I want to take as much as I can right now. But really to like put the time in your head of still being able to process it and use it, right? Because the food waste is still, that's still an issue. Just because there's like a ton of mussels on the rocks doesn't mean you should just take them all and then let some of them go to waste. Um, Yeah, really being intentional with what you're doing and what you're taking when you're out there. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and it really, yeah, and being someone who's not living on the coast and, and, you know, my friend Lindsay came with me and we were like, you know, as we're like, oh, it's so tempting. But really, in the end, like, she and I, you know, use the little ones to steam that night. And then, I mean, it takes a lot to process the big ones. Yeah. (laughs) And if and it's a, you know, it's kind of a nerve wracking experience. (laughs) They're still alive. And you have to like cut into this like live thing in order to and kill it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and, um, in order to process it. But Yeah. yeah. Totally. It really like it, it connects you with where your food is coming from. I think it's a, it's powerful. (laughs) It really does. I mean, and it does like having to actually process it yourself too is it's, it feels necessary. I feel like that was really like helpful for me and that with the, the big um, cockle clams, especially because they are, it is kind of nerve wracking. I think when you had shown us uh, the, the first demonstration, the, um, the 
uh, shell cracked. And so it's big, like foot came out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Lindsay, like, I could not stop thinking about that when I was, <laughs> when I was processing art clams. Cause I was like, oh my God, that was so like cringe, <laughs> cringy, <laughs> but it also was like, okay, this thing is alive. And it like brings a little bit more respect to the actual thing that you're, that you're processing because like, I got this here and now I have to, you know, I have to do right by it in some way. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um so if attendees learn or gain one thing from your classes, what do you hope that would be? Um, I think it's a desire to like want to continue protecting these ecosystems. So whether or not you live at the coast or you know, you live in a city, you are directly and if not indirectly connected to these ecosystems. And, you know, it could just be the food that you eat, but also like most of the oxygen we breathe is coming from seaweed in the ocean. And I think people know this, you know, and they're like definitely getting behind what we can do to protect these ecosystems. But it's really just just the small changes in your day-to-day life to not be using carbon or emitting carbon as much as we have, or it's, really easy these days to get like wrapped up in the doom and gloom of what might be going on in the world and feeling Mm -hmm. pretty helpless. And I think just getting into these, um, into the environment that you live in and really like experiencing what it's all about and what it provides us with is, um, yeah, it's pretty powerful to get you to make a small change. Mm -hmm. What are some what are some of your favorite resources that you recommend to folks? Uh, resources and also like ocean related action steps that people like really practically can take. Um resources in terms of yeah, things around seafood. I feel like seafood sustainability is like such a multifaceted and complicated topic, but um the Monterey Bay Seafood Watch is a great one. If you like want to eat seafood but want to make sure that you're doing it in a way that's not completely harming our oceans um, and wild populations of fish, the Monterey Bay Seafood Watch will not only tell you species that are good to eat, but like knowing, you know, how they were harvested or who, where in the world they were harvested, which can tell you a lot about practices. Um, And I think just not being afraid to ask questions when you go out to eat and you're, you know, if you're ordering seafood, like wondering where that fish is coming from. um, I think that's huge. I think just like having, yeah, that seafood watch as a resource and not being afraid to ask those questions is great. And then, you know, realizing that sometimes you just might not get to eat what you want if you realize it's not really aligned with what you believe in. (laughs) Yeah. So I think, and that's something I've just been learning more and more about while working in food systems along our coast is like the disconnect between where our food is coming from and where it's actually going. In Oregon, it's like pretty astonishing how much of our seafood is exported and how much seafood we import. And it just like doesn't make sense to my mind (laughs) that we import 90% and we export 90%. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let's just <Hey>. keep here <laughs> yeah um one thing that I've been thinking a lot about with especially with the foraging workshops is I mean and this is I you know I read braiding sweetgrass actually like I finished it right before the the class oh, last cool. spring and so it was like in my mind and kind yeah. of so many of these concepts of the responsible harvest and such but also just thinking about kind of indigenous 
um, practices and foraging and how it's so ingrained in so many indigenous cultural traditions. And I'm just curious if that's something that you engage with in your work on the coast, or if you all, especially at um, Oregon Seaweed, have relationships with the um, the tribes on the co- the tribal or the, the coastal tribes. Um, just curious about that aspect of it. Yeah, I would love that. We right now, I we're still kind of new as a company, and I have not had time to like focus into that. But I would love to connect with people out here, um, just like you. Yeah, I read Braiding Sweetgrass and have. Taken, took a few classes in college about indigenous Pacific Northwest tribes and learning, you know, this like common misconception that went on for years that there wasn't any like, there weren't people like cultivating the land out here that things were all just foraged for. And that was, that's not correct. Like things were definitely changed to improve growing conditions for a lot of species. And just recently kind of diving back into that in the ocean world and how there were literally like, you know, clam farms, essentially, not really, but they were building like rock beds to bring clams to a specific area. And the rocks would also um, uh, just like encourage seaweed growth and all these other things. So it is something I want to get into more and be able to like have enough knowledge to start teaching about it more. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh, soon to be. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's actually something that I think about a lot is that, yeah, there's this common misconception with all wild spaces or quote wild in our minds that there were, you know, that they were not populated by humans or stewarded by humans yet for, you know, millennia they were, it's just, it was done in such a natural way and a way that like, just showed the understanding of ecosystems and and relationships with the land that were built that are land and oceans that it looked wild um but it re, you know but there were still but there was intentionality around it and I'm I'm doing a ton of learning about that too and and um that's what I loved about braiding sweetgrass is that it was kind of like little elements of that um throughout that kind of helped you know help shaped the way I see wild places Yeah, I think the storytelling in that book is really like something that hits a lot of people. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Is there anything else that you think that, you know, folks in this community would be interested in hearing about related to, you know, related to seaweed and related to the oceans and protecting the oceans that we haven't talked about? Um, Hmm. I can't think specifically, but I do think, yeah, just in my world of seaweed, it's like been really apparent, at least like working at farmer's markets, selling seaweed to people. It's um, It's been pretty apparent that people are all kind of intimidated by these things that they don't know that much about. And I think, yeah, it's been really apparent to me just in the world of seaweed, but being able to like focus in or learn more about these products that we might not be so familiar with from growing up in this culture. Um, but knowing and realizing that like in order for <laughs> these big things in our world to change, we need to be willing to make small changes, right? So whether it's changing your diet or just learning more about what you're eating or about where things are coming from, um, really just making those connections to our environment and what how we're impacting them and the things that we're doing every day. Um, yeah. And if that means like taking a foraging workshop and just getting out there and experiencing, then great. But if that's also to you, like 
just reading more books and doing more research on like finding these resources that help you be more sustainable and kind of walk lightly. Um, Thank you so much for talking to me. Um, Can you give us a sense of what uh, else you have going on? Um, it's so through Wildcraft, I do have a lot of classes this summer. Um, I'm also, (laughs) I just launched my own business. I don't know if you've seen that, but so I just launched a business that is the same structure, like just foraging workshops, but also we'll do educational, um, just educational intertidal stuff. So that's called Shifting Tides. And I just built a website. I'm just learning all the business things. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Congratulations. But thanks. Um, but I'll be launching some through that that are not only me, but doing some collaborations with other foragers and chefs to go in from like doing an ocean forage to a forest forage to like a wild edibles dinner. Um, oh my gosh. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. We do have a date for that that I guess we're finalizing all the details. So I don't know. How you should, I can send you more details. on. Yeah. It. Send me more details and I can put it all on the website okay, cool. too. That's yeah. awesome. Congratulations. That's really cool. I love yeah. that concept. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a big part of this whole process for me too, is that, I mean, I, I love cooking. Like cooking is a big, is like the one skill that I actually probably have that I don't oh, need yeah. to build, but like <laughs> yeah. there is, but there is like, you know, some trepidation about what that looks like in kind of a, when everything, you know, shit hits the fan and we don't have like electricity or that kind of stuff. And so (laughs) it's been a really like interesting, like process to, to think about what this thing that I love so much would be like in these after times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It is pretty wild. Yeah. It's been fun because it's kind of just, I feel like I should have launched this business years ago, but it's, kind of just giving me a platform to like do more events like that, whether they're educational or they're foraging based or they're now food based um, and just kind of, yeah, have a, have a platform for all of it. That's great. And um, can people find you on social media as well? Yeah. So shifting tides Northwest is um, my Instagram handle and then shifting tides NW.com is my new website. Okay. Great. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alana. It was really yeah. good to chat with you again and to see you again. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Same here. Thanks for thinking of me. So that was my inaugural podcast issue or audio issue of Cramming for the Apocalypse. And I want to thank again, Alana Kiefer for joining me. And I am so excited for her new business because I am a hundred percent going to participate, um, especially in that sea to table workshop. That sounds uh, totally up my alley. And um, you all should check her out as well at all of the handles and everything she mentioned. And uh, stay tuned for some additional, some new um, issues, audio issues of Cramming for the Apocalypse. And thanks for, for listening.